HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to cane5.com. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my great pleasure today to welcome Peter Kaminsky into the studio. Peter is the, or was, the underground gourmet for New York Magazine for four years. He wrote the Outdoors column for the New York Times for 20 years. He's a longtime contributor to Food and Wine Magazine and the former editor of National Lampoon. His books include Pig Perfect, Seven Fires, Grilling the Argentine Way, Letters to a Young Chef with Danielle Ballou, and John Madden's Ultimate Tailgating. Talk about the ultimate, um, shall we say, high and low there. And your new book is Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well, in parentheses. Um, it's nice that you put and really well in parentheses, because I think that the idea of eating healthy and really well is almost an oxymoron in many people's eyes. Would you agree with that, Peter? Yeah, sadly, yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have to be, but it's like I think people associate eating healthily with eating, uh, you know, sort of roots and berries, and um, and that can be a very dispiriting, uh, <laughs> dispiriting attitude to have towards dinner. I personally like to look forward to my meals and think about them in great depth before I actually go into the kitchen to create them or go to a restaurant to eat them. And so the idea that something is supposed to be healthy and that implies being good for you and that implies sort of brown food without a lot of flavor. So um, when you talk about when your book is titled Culinary Intelligence and you talk about culinary, culinary intelligence, what do you mean by that? So what, what is that all about, culinary intelligence? Well, I mean, to take a step backward, uh, yes, just a brief one. Uh, as a food writer, I had an occupational hazard and I was about uh, 40 pounds heavier than those in the listening audience see me now. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I went for light, get my life insurance renewed, and I flunked because I was borderline uh, diabetic. So the doctor uh, said, if you take some weight off, you have a shot here. And I'd never really thought about taking weight off. Uh, I never thought about putting weight on, but if you don't think about putting weight on, you're going to put weight on. And I had over the, my years as a food writer. Um, so uh, I changed the way I eat. Uh, or, or that I ate and the, the way I continue to eat. Uh, I'm with you. If food isn't a pleasure, 
then no one would eat healthy. Uh, but I do eat healthy, and I think I, uh, you need to take pleasure in food. And if I had to boil it down into a nutshell, what I did was, uh, like we've all read for years, well, like many people have read for years, but I never bothered to read, uh, cut out the white stuff. So uh, basically I got rid of white flour, uh, white sugar, uh, cut way down on the booze. Uh, I, would, I, I, I did not and will never give it up. Uh, but I Thank would, you for saying yeah, that. I mean, you need to take pleasure. Um, <clears throat> you know, cut down desserts, potatoes, uh, pretty much uh, got rid of. That's painful. I mean, as an Irish person... Uh, potatoes are kind of part of my basic food groups, but well, potatoes are a great thing, and uh, you know you don't have to completely get rid of them. But I did to lose weight, uh-huh. and I lost about uh, twenty pounds over the course of six months. And during that time, it was like three trips to South America to work on the Argentine grilling book, which was mm-hmm. meat and wine, and I also did a dessert book where I just dip my little pinky in the desserts uh, with Michelle Richard. So if I could do it under those circumstances, I believe it's doable. So what it boils down to is get rid of the white stuff, then very importantly, buy the best, most full-flavored ingredients you can afford. Because if things don't have flavor, they're not going to satisfy you. And if they don't satisfy you, you're going to compensate with a lot of sugar, salt, and fat. The Holy Trinity. Yes. And uh, so get rid of the white, buy the best stuff you can afford. It doesn't mean all truffles. It just means (laughs) stuff that's in season or a little bit of bacon every now and then. And cook or live with someone who does. Because uh, a a diet only of eating out or taking out is not going to lose you any weight. Yeah. Well, I think um, I'm, I'm still like, what is the intelligence part of the culinary? What is the equation there? What, what, is, what do you mean by when you say culinary intelligence? It's like you're giving us a prescription, basically, that makes total sense to me, painful as it may be. Um, but I, I'm, I think people would have a hard time equating that with intelligence. And I, I want to kind of drill down on that sort of like the mindfulness, which is what you talk about a lot in the book. And I, I think that's kind of a key part of what you're, um, what you're espousing here is, and is the mindfulness of what you choose and how you put it together. And that's kind of what I want to get at with this question is like, what is culinary intelligence? It, it is mindful eating. So let's, let's hear a little bit well, about what that eating, means. It, it's it's uh, buying the best ingredients and cooking. And uh, listen, like a lot of the uh, most basic principles, the smartest principles in life, they're very simple. Uh, if they're complicated, uh, they're probably not right. Uh, and in fact, I think a problem with many, many diets, in fact, every diet I've ever come across is you're chasing this nutrient or that nutrient or you're balancing two days of a certain kind of food out with one day of cleansing on it. They're extremely complicated and they make no sense in the long run they don't work so the intelligent thing I mean uh, it's a principle in philosophy called Occam's Razor Uh the simplest most elegant solution is the correct one that's what I mean by intelligence but you also bring up a good point with mindfulness I think uh, you know we're taught not to obsess about food if we want to lose weight I say obsess about it think about it a lot because if you think about what you would like to eat if you think about the flavors that you're going to combine and how you're going to combine them, and if you think about cooking and achieving the effect that you want, and cooking, both finding great ingredients and preparing them is not 
that terribly hard. You've got a million years of you know DNA that's learned how to select produce and 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 and, and prepare it. Um, and you know, you put those together, you have uh, an equation that's very simple, very elegant, and I think quite intelligent, but not a whole lot to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you talk about is the flavor per calorie equation, and you describe the idea that, and you mentioned this for, for a second earlier, but if you find the most full-flavored ingredients, it tends to press the right buttons. So give us an example of well, flavor, per, you know, I, flavor I, per calorie. In fact, early on in the book, I talk about uh, four foods that don't appear in many uh, diet books, but they certainly appear in my diet. Steak, beer, <laughs> cheese, and chocolate. Yeah. Now, I I would... And bacon. I mean, you're not... Well, uh, that's I, the flavoring I, we, we could talk about that as okay. well, but let's take these, these four. We did a... I did a taste test with uh, uh, the Franks from Frankie's. Yep. And my wife, Melinda, I think, a daughter or two daughters, some other friends. Uh, that's the good thing about taste tests. Human beings all pretty much have the same ta- taste. They may not all be wine connoisseurs, but they all have the, you know, the same taste buds in their right. mouth. And we did seven strip steaks and seven uh, ribeyes. Mm-hmm. Various stages of grass-fed and aged and corn-fed and just regular old stuff. And uh, when you get to the end of that, I mean, you can try it yourself. Uh, You know, buy some shrink wrap stuff at the supermarket and then get something, some really good meat, you know, if you can find it and afford it. I would put it to you that three slices of a terrific ribeye with a nice crust on it and some salt are going to satisfy you in a way that, you know, if I can use brand names, you know, a pound and a half outback is not going to. You're going to still be looking for steak at the end. I'll do the same thing with beer. One really great, you know, IPA, you're going to get that beerness out of it. Uh, You know, six light beers, it'll be a beer-like experience, but you're still going to be looking for that satisfaction. (laughs) A beer-light experience. Yuck. Couple... Uh, squares of so a great dark chocolate, say Scharfenberger's, you know, you can find around a lot of places, owned by Hershey's, uh, yeah. versus a Hershey bar. A couple of those squares uh, are going to satisfy you. And by the way, Mr. South Beach, Dr. Arthur Agatston, has a couple squares of chocolate every day on his diet. So my point is, you don't have to do away with the things that give you pleasure. You just don't want to have inferior quality because you're going to keep eating and eating and eating and you're never going to find pleasure in it. Does yeah. that make sense? That totally makes sense to me. And I think that uh, the, the big challenge is to... Um, I think the, the way our food system has evolved that, you know, we were talking a second ago about the holy trinity of sugar, salt, and fat. And and those three elements have been combined in, in thousands of ways to entice us to eat more and more food Um whether it's prepared foods, fast foods, you know, even just, you know, something out of a can or even something that's probably okay, like a freshly prepared something from Fairway, God forgive it. I mean, I love Fairway and I think they make great foods, but, you know, their, their chefs are all, they're all kind of trained to have that sugar, salt and fat ratio to a greater or lesser degree. And that's what makes people want to eat more. And so I think if you, if you can back those elements out and bring in real flavors that your point is made that it's and of course I was making some what most diet 
experts would re, uh, regard as extreme cases. But look, this week, if if you're not buying a real strawberry that comes from a farm around here in New York City, and you're buying some Driscolls, it's the difference between eating fruit and sucking on a paper towel. <laughs> you know, you're going to be satisfied. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the vegetables are just extraordinary now, and. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, one often hears the charge of uh, unaffordable or elitism. But when things are in season, anyone who's ever a garden knows when you've got a zucchini, you've got a lot of zucchini. That's right. When things are in season, they're just not all that expensive. Yeah. Um, so well, the a, USDA actually just came out with a yes, paper yes. that said that buying fruit, fruits and vegetables in season or whatever, that, that eating healthy is not necessarily more expensive. And I think that the, um, I think the biggest conundrum for people to eat healthily, and I don't know if you guys watched that four-part series on HBO, The Weight of the Nation, and there was a big conference. Um, what they were saying, it was really interesting to me because they were talking about things like they would show some lovely person who was, you know, enormously overweight. And she said, well, I took baby steps and I stopped drinking soda and I stopped nibbling between meals. Like kind of the obvious stuff that you would assume people would sort of figure out in spite of the heavy marketing that we have towards those products. Um but they never talked about actually getting in the kitchen and cooking your own meals. I don't think there was one single part of this four-hour documentary series that encouraged people to go shopping and buy food that they could make from scratch. And I thought that was so telling about our culture. And um, I wanted to kind of discuss with you sort of the whole shift away from being in the kitchen and obviously the impact that it's had on all of our waistlines and how would be the best way to encourage people to go back to the kitchen and reassure them that A, it's not that hard, B, as the USDA says, it's not that expensive, and C, it doesn't take that much time. What's like? What's something really easy and healthy that you make for your family? Well, uh, a roast chicken. Yeah. But, but I never make a roast chicken. Make two roast chickens. It tastes, it takes exactly, well, maybe it takes four minutes longer. Right. Um, but uh, when you go to the tr- a roast chicken, I I, br- I always brine it uh, in a combination of some salt uh, and some honey and some bay leaf that I boil up, and then I add some cool water to it and I brine the chicken for about six hours. Um, brined chicken stays moister. Um, uh-huh. The so even if you buy supermarket chicken, you're going to get a better end product. If absolutely, you, if you take the trouble yeah, to go through the white that meat's not going to dry dry out. Right, and you just you brine it. That's it. Stick it in the oven, 475, face the legs towards the back. 55 minutes later, it's done. That's all you got to do. No basting, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think... It's hard to imagine anything easier than that. And considering how many meals you would get out of it, yeah, it's a very cost-effective... When you buy asparagus, which is I, I buy a lot of right, right about now, uh, I buy two bunches, and I roast them both. Actually, Melinda does more of the roasting than I do. Uh, uh, but we ro- we'll ro- roast two bunches with some salt and some olive oil. They're great later in the week. Instead of letting the vegetables sit and sort of lose flavor, the fresh vegetables lose flavor in the fridge, prepare them, you know, roast them up. They're great. Makes sense. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I think the, listen, it takes a little bit of time to cook. But... I really believe, A, I find, I find it to be a great pleasure. 
Uh, I know how well time-pressed all of us are. Um, but as I say, if you're able to prepare a few meals worth of food at once, if you have great ingredients, you got to do less to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. When I started out in the food business, um, my chef was a guy named Michel Guiton, and um, I'm still really close friends with him. And I'll never forget his, he said, you don't need to cook book. Get the best ingredients and don't screw it up. <laughs> that was That's it. Absolutely. Yeah, well. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it starts out great. From there, all you can do is mess it up. Yeah, exactly. And the less you do to it, as you point out, uh, like Occam's razor, the less you do, the better they are. If you have really good ingredients to start with, it's going to be very hard to make it bad, right? Yeah, if you learn, I mean, if there's two things you learn, if you can learn how to put a good crust on meat, mm-hmm. uh, it's tremendously flavorful. It's what turns mammals on like, you know, nobody's business. And also, if you can learn how to caramelize vegetables, uh, again, not tremendously hard. A little bit of oil or butter and some heat and some salt. And you got a nice little crunchy brown stuff on vegetables. Yeah. People can eat that from now until doomsday and uh, they never get tired of it. Absolutely. Joe, we're going to take a short break here for a sponsor drop and we'll be right back with Peter Kaminsky, the author of Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. Thanks for staying with us. are proud to support Heritage Radio Network and the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to keen5.com. And all the times I had the chance to We are back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. By the way, it's Brooklyn Open Studios this week, or rather Bushwick Open Studios this week. So if you are interested in what uh, people are doing on the cutting edge of the art scene in New York, I urge you to come out to Morgan Avenue. There's a lot of open studios out here right now. Um, So we are back with Peter Kaminsky, the author of Culinary Intelligence. Um, Peter, we were talking about cooking at home and how um, it's not so time-consuming. It doesn't have to be such an um, intimidating experience. But what about when you go to restaurants? Like, how do you manage... Um, I mean, you have no idea what goes into somebody's food in a restaurant. First of all, there's no way of measuring the calories um, because we all know that chefs have lots of little tricks up their sleeve to boost the flavor, and a lot of times that includes the Holy Trinity. <laughs> of lots and lots and lots and lots, lots of butter. Lots of butter and oil, Yeah. <laughs> And also, the portion sizes are, are tend to be quite well, large. Yeah. So, how do you manage that? Well, yeah, I'll tell you a little story. We, uh, Melinda and I went to see uh, Colin Quinn's uh, History of the World. Uh, very funny show. It was on the Lower East Side. It was a warm night, so we decided to a summer night to walk back to Brooklyn. And we're walking down Mulberry Street in Little Italy, where I haven't been for a while. 
and the old joints are there. And there are these new places that look like they were airlifted in from, you know, the Prada showroom in Milan. <laughs> is that where the Prada showroom is? I hope. Anyway. And, you know, very, very nice, thin Italian waiters, everybody very coordinated, beautiful yeah. designer uh, uh, you know, plates and lights and booths, and the menus are all in Italian. It's Italy, but it ain't Italy. Something out of the corner of my eye tells me it's not Italy. And about it, it's not Italy. And about halfway down the block, I look and I say, "Oh yeah, I know what it is. It's these plates. They're really big plates, and every one of them is full, wall to wall. I mean, food is like almost dripping off of it. Yikes." You'd never see that in Italy. People eat small portions of pasta. You know, it's four to six ounces of meat with a vegetable or two around it. We have got this value equation in our minds that in restaurants, it's got to be a pile of food. And it's been slow, what I call portion creep over the last 34 years. If you make yours a little bit bigger, then I'm going to make mine bigger still. So we eat enormous portions in restaurants. So we go to a restaurant. I try and look at the menu to say, gee, what's not buried in a lot of cheese? I mean, I like cheese, but, you know, inferior ingredients uh, yeah. don't taste so inferior where they're buried under a lot of blue cheese. Uh, I try to look for things that aren't that have a lot of breading on them because, again, uh, that's going to be highly caloric. And I think the real trick is they ain't going to change the portion size just because you walked in with health on your mind. So we try and order uh, an appetizer per two people. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, excuse me, one appetizer per person, one entree for two for two people. Right. And the desserts, I don't know, for a group of six, you know, you can, you can get away with two desserts. Yeah, I think so, too. Really easy. Yeah. I also like to eat uh, salads prophylactically, if I can combine the two words in a sentence. <laughs> uh, because you get the volume that starts to fill you up with salads. And a lot of restaurants, like the one that we're sitting near, uh, looking out on today, Roberta's, uh, do beautiful things with fresh vegetables. And that's a great way to get get the meal going uh, without a lot of fried mozzarella and breadsticks. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think when we had Michael Pollan on, um, Patrick had him on the main course a few months ago, and and he sort of delivered his food rules. And it was really interesting because the first thing he said was, Fill your plate up with vegetables and add meat as the last part of it. It's not that you can't or shouldn't eat meat, but it doesn't have to be the center of the plate. It can just be a flavoring agent. And typically, and certainly in a lot of European cuisine, in the where meat was, you know, expensive in the purview of the more wealthy, it was only really used as a flavoring agent. And that's something that I mean, I think you make that point. You make that case a lot. Even if you're going to have a steak, okay, it's going to be your main thing. It doesn't have to be huge, but especially using things like bacon or a piece of ham or something like that bacon to and flavor, ham. you know, almost everything. Right? Uh, uh, listen, we we get a country ham uh, around. Uh, uh, December for my traditional potato latkes and uh, country ham party. Very nice, very nice, Peter. I like that. <laughs> and, and I hope you're getting it from S. Wallace Edwards and Son, our friends from Surrey, Virginia. Actually, I like <laughs> Sam theirs very Edwards mu- makes great country. Sam ham. is great. I, I have been buying from Nancy Newsom since okay, since her dad was around. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Edwards is terrific. Benton's great. Any real great traditional American. I, I keep it around for a couple of months. Uh, and I cook everything with it. It flavor. You know, what are you going to do with kale after the fortieth kale meal of the winter? 
Yeah. You, you can always sex it up with some hot pepper flakes and uh, and some crisp bacon yeah. uh, or some crisp ham. Uh, so ham and bacon, you know, they're very high uh, in umami that almost in this indefinable, undefinable, but uh, 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 very necessary uh, flavor that really denotes a sense of protein. That's right. what I. Th- that's what I think it is. It means I can get some protein out of this, and I really need it. Uh, so that's why human beings love it so much. And bacon has got a lot of that. Plus, bacon and ham, because they're aged products, you know, just like aged wine, they begin to break down into hundreds of beautiful little and seductive, enticing flavor compounds. And that really adds to whatever you you cook it with. Anchovies, complete right. umami bombs, Parmesan cheese. In fact, there's a, a recipe in my book that I groan worthingly call uh, pasta pitanesca. I saw that. <laughs> I liked the recipes, by the way. Yeah. There are 14 recipes at the end of the book, and they're all really sensible recipes that you could you know, rotate through your menu on a regular basis. And like you said, never get tired of them. I think that was the one that you said you never get tired of, actually. I never do. Yeah. And the point there is, you know, the... Uh, the Italianissimo experts will tell you never, never include uh, cheese with your uh, seafood. But this is anchovies, tomatoes. Tomatoes, believe it or not, are a vegetable that has umami. I didn't know that. I didn't know The that great either. Harold McGee gave me a lesson that when we ate here, oh, really? had sandwiches here some, some months ago. Uh, but you have tomatoes, you have anchovies. Uh, a little Parmigiano in it. Um, well, you put a little piece of the rind in. Exactly. And that's something, I, that's a little flavor-boosting secret that I don't think many people really are aware oh, of. Yeah. It's like you pay the money for the good Parmigiano, even Grana Padano, and then you save that rind. It's it's never going to go to waste. You throw it into a pot of soup or a pot of beans. beans. Or, brilliant. My mouth is watering right yeah, now just uh, thinking about that. <laughs> I, mean, I might have to go right home and make some. <laughs> beans don't do a whole lot for you unless you do something to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Parmigiano helps a lot. Yeah, bacon helps a lot in Bacon beans. helps a lot, yeah. a little bit of rosemary, a little bit of oregano. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah, I have many, many ways of doing beans. Um, I wanted to talk for just a second, though, about the impact of the Food Network, which... On the one hand, I think was really responsible for bringing ethnic foods to the masses, for bringing uh, better quality and more interesting ingredients into supermarkets because of the demand that they created um, in turning people on to Indian food or Mexican food or whatever. Um, But I also feel like it's kind of almost gone to a point now where people are maybe slightly intimidated by the dishes because it's no longer the focus is, is less on cooking at home it's more on cooking as a spectator sport because of all the contest shows and I wondered what you thought about that I feel like some of the things that they're doing now are almost literally discouraging people rather than encouraging them to get I into the kitchen I think they're doing for food what Playboy magazine did for, did for breasts in the yeah. 1950s <laughs> I mean, if you didn't have that Barbie girl you know hourglass figure uh, uh, yeah. if you were a lady who didn't have that somehow you felt you weren't making the the grade, and yeah. you know, guys really circumscribed, not circumcised, circumscribed <laughs> their choices. So, um, yeah, f- uh, uh, food is competition. Food is outlandish ingredients. Cooking against the clock. I mean, these none of these make any sense to me. There's a show that went on the air this year on ABC called The Chew. 
I oh, yeah, yeah. I now, know. that's Mario Batali, a wonderful chef. Yeah. Michael Simon. Also a uh, wonderful chef. Carla Hall. I particularly like that show because these are three people, and, and there's, you know, Daphne Oz uh, and uh, uh, Clinton uh, Kelly. They all know food, and they all like to cook, and they just stand around and cook like in a real kitchen, and by and large, they turn out dishes that I would eat. Yeah. And to me, they show that cooking is accessible, uh, and it's not something to be scared of. I must of. not have watched the right episode, because frankly, it made me gag. Oh. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretentious and pompous, and oh, they no, annoyed no, no. the crap it, out it, of give me. It, give it another really? shot. Really? Okay, Peter. Shot. Is that... If you say so, I'll take your word for it. But I was just like, oh, my God, please. I don't know. There was something so precious about it that I just wanted to really? slit my throat. Yeah. I think you must have seen the one like that. I must have, it yeah. it really is a very accessible show, and the food's good. Yeah, well, that I have no doubt of. But I just I felt like the but way they were to, talking about it was point, not... To your point, it's not the inaccessible ingredients. It's not the architectural presentation. It's not the cooking against the clock stuff. Yeah. Uh and that's, that's, you know, have you ever been, I mean, that's what I like about watching Mario uh, cook. Have you ever been uh, to somebody's house, or perhaps it's your house, you know? When folks are over and a meal is be, being put together, if it's, if it's a good cook who likes cooking, somehow it just seems to go together. Oh, yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> take... You're looking s- at somebody who runs a rolling house party for two yeah. solid months every year. It doesn't take... <laughs> It doesn't take up a lot of, you know, mental bandwidth. You just, yeah. you're there, you're talking, stuff goes in a pan, yeah. dinner's ready. Absolutely. Uh, that's the way cooking should be. Yeah, it's supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to be, I mean, when I was growing up, my mom cooked, you know, three meals a day, believe it or not. Um, my father worked at home, he was an artist, and my mother was a writer, so they actually made lunch. So it was, she made breakfast for everybody, then lunch for the two of them. My, my father liked a nice hot lunch, and um, <laughs> the tyranny of the hot lunch <laughs> and then dinner for five people and it was somehow she just accomplished that along with everything else effortlessly but it was also kind of a group exercise I mean at lunch she and my dad cooked together at dinner I cooked with her and um, it wasn't uh, something special it was just what you did it was just part of the day's activities and I think that that to me is the, the, the part that has gone away in American culture and which I think is really unfortunate world because, culture I mean I guess the, yeah. we have blazed a path uh, and the world is following, you know, picking up our Slurpees and French fries. I know, and building their fast food joints. And I mean, it's just so sad to me. I can't stand it. Um, now, in this great national conversation about the O word, I refuse to say it out loud anymore. I'm so sick of hearing about it. But still, the O word, do you think that if, um, if, do you think that people in this conversation, everybody worried about how fat they are, um, do you think that they will eventually get propelled back into the kitchen by this? Or do you think that um, we're basically doomed to be a nation of fatties and even eventually a world of fatties? Good question. Uh, no species, you know, has, has ever gone ex- extinct by under-consuming, you know, <laughs> when it had the ability to. So sometimes I think we'll be like the gypsy moths, you know, they, there comes a day when they've eaten every available leaf in the forest, and then they starve to death the next day. Um, I just don't know where we're going. Listen, we can't survive uh, uh, on a petroleum 
uh, and chemical-based uh, economy and agriculture. It just, well, we can't survive in the long right. term. Uh, whether we will is another question. It, it's not only, you know, in Bushwick, New York, that uh, people are starting to try and eat better, cook better, buy better. You know, I see that all over America. When I started my book just a few years ago, I think there was 4,200 uh, farmers markets. Right. Uh, we're over 8,000 now. That's right. So there's, you know, and even, you know, you go to the Publix in Boynton Beach, Florida, where my parents have the ancestral condo. Um, there's <laughs> there's some local. There's some organic. Um, there's choices now that there weren't 15, 20 years ago. Um, on the other hand, the obesity curve in places like India and China that have begun to adopt our Western fast food diet is, you know, just like a rocket ship. Yeah, off the charts. There's, I, there's almost as many overweight people in India. You know, we always think of the starving kids, you know, yeah. with their ribs showing. There's almost as many overweight people in India as there are people in the United States of America. Good Lord. And that's something that's happened as this Western-style diet has been, um, has been adopted. So... Here's what I think people need to, to know. You have to live your own life. And the statistics are, are very alarming. You know, two billion more calories, uh, two billion more pounds, uh, on a billion on Americans in the last 15 years. Yeah. 300 more calories per day. Yet, everyone who's maintained a healthy weight or gotten to a healthy weight over the course of the last 15 years in this country has done it in spite of those statistics. So you really do have to take a little responsibility and take charge. You'll eat better and enjoy it more, I, I promise. Well, the book is called Culinary Intelligence, <laughs> The Art of Eating Healthy and, and really, really Well. The author, Peter Kaminsky, thank you so much for coming in. It was very nice to see you and your wife, Melinda. I hope you guys will come back and be regular guests. This has been an episode of Straight No Chaser. We were sponsored today by Kane vineyards and thank you so much to my engineer joe it was great working with you today and we'll see you next week folks uh have a great week Bye. thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.